Welcome to the Culture Chat, hosted by WorkXO. Our mission is to upgrade work. Find out more about our workplace genome project at WorkXO.com. And now, over to our host for today. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Culture Chat, hosted by WorkXO. Um, my name is Maddie Grant. I'm a co-founder of WorkXO. We're a culture analytics and culture management firm, and I'm very happy to be here with Caroline Miller, who is a an author and a all-around very impressive person um, that we've actually had on the podcast before. So what I'll do is I'll ask Caroline to introduce herself and give some context and some background, and then we're going to dive right into our second conversation um, around the concept of grit. So Caroline, um, give us your background. Just to get <laughs> Why don't we just stick with them all around impressive person? I have never heard that. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for giving me that. Um, well, I am, as you said, I'm an author. This is my seventh book. Getting Grit is my seventh book. I'm a positive psychology expert, if you want to use that word. I'm, I'm one of the first 33 graduates of the Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program. University of Pennsylvania. So that was in 2006. So I've been doing this positive psychology thing for a very long time and weaving together um, the theories and research on goal setting and grit in particular and trying to make a really unique difference in a disruptive way with people all over the world um, who need the tools um, and the application of research to make the changes they need to make and then stick with those changes when they get hard and that's where grit comes in so I'm a fifth generation Washingtonian and competitive master swimmer and I'm working towards another black belt and I'm trying to walk the walk (laughs) instead of just talking the talk in the work I do so um, I'll just leave it there that's awesome so last time we spoke on the podcast um, you were you're latest book was not out yet. Um, So we talked a lot about the concept of grit, um, authentic grit versus stupid grit and and other um, specifics around the concept. And I will actually post a link to the previous podcast for our listeners. So you Mm -hmm. can um, listen to that. Um, So this time, what we wanted to do is um, talk a little bit more deeply around grit in in the workplace, because of course, Mm -hmm. our perspective is around workplace culture. But before I dig into that kind of first question about that, um, tell us about this latest book and what what it's all about that kind of goes further than the, the books before. Well, um, so one of my mentors and friends is Angela Duckworth, whose book I think most people have heard of at this point came out last May, zoomed to number one all over the world. Um, and she's um, doing the research at the University of Pennsylvania and now in her character lab that is really around this concept of grit. And as I um, became very familiar with her research and included a, a chapter about it in my fifth book, Creating Your Best Life, and I believe I was the first person to bring her research to the mass market um, in a you know, popular selling book, I, I realized I wanted to go that much deeper because the happiest people wake up every day to hard goals. And if you're going to have hard goals, you have to have this quality of grit. But what Angela's book doesn't do, and that she's very vocal about the fact that my book does, is she talks about the importance of grit, but she doesn't talk about how to get it. Mm. I talk about how to get grit. And that's that's directly, you know, from my work, not just with myself. And I think early in the book, I talk about 
how I had to cultivate grit to save my own life essentially 30 some years ago um, because I wanted people to understand and I do want people to understand that you don't have to be born with grit in fact you are not born with grit you cultivate grit um, and I think it's one of the most important qualities that you can have in the 21st century. It's being named as one of the most important soft skills for the 21st century workplace. So you really have to understand it. So Angela's book educated people on the importance of what it is. My book is the very natural add-on, which is what I'm hearing from people all over the world. It's this one-two punch. There's her book, but then how do we get it? So here's Caroline's book. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm incredibly grateful because I've been all over the world this year talking about it. And the world is very receptive to my definitions and my approach. So it's going very well. That's awesome. So obviously there are many different ways to cultivate grit, as you talk about. Um, and you have lots of examples in the book around um, sports and, you know, kind of personal or social situations like that. Um, but in terms of workplace culture, um, I actually am really resonating with how you're describing the idea of cultivating grit. And I'm wondering if a workplace, do we look for, should we look for workplaces that, that cultivate grit? Or should we look for workplaces that sort of already have people with grit? You know, you know what I'm trying to say? <laughs> so I think so. I think so. And I think the answer is um, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm finding and what I found in all my interviews is that there is a need for the workplace in many cases to be the place where millennials learn grit sometimes for the first time. And let me just pause and say this isn't about millennials being lazy or bad or any of that because yeah. I think they get a bum rap. Um, it's not fair. My kids are millennials and, and it, they didn't do to, to our culture and to education and educational systems and to companies and to sports teams, they didn't bring all the trophies in, but they certainly were the victims of this winner, you know, everyone's a winner idea mm -hmm. and this great inflation. And um, so many of the things we've seen that have softened the standards for excellence, not just in our country, but around the world. Um, and so I think they've been victimized by the fact that it became harder to do hard things. And if that's the case, then you don't always know how to achieve excellent elite standards, which is what I think a lot of people aspire to. But if everyone's winning and there's no distinguishing between first place and 16th place, why would you even, you know, go through all that physical and emotional and sometimes financial agony um, to become a winner? So you have to get very lucky in life and either run into something like Eagle Scouting or even being a Mormon or growing up on a family farm and going through years of enforced discipline, you know, doors being slammed in your face, cows that have to be milked. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and, you know, in my case, I grew up as a swimmer. I had a rower, a swimmer, and a football player as children, and their sports taught them delayed gratification and grit. And, you know, so I think you have to get lucky in life at this point to be able to cultivate grit. So the workplace is now becoming quickly one of the first places people are actually getting performance reviews that have criticism. Uh, they're not used to it. Um, they're not used to being held to high standards and not getting what they want immediately. So this is what our culture has done to the millennial generation. But I also talk in my book about ordinary grit. And I think um, cultures, workplace cultures that have ordinary grit, so ordinary people doing extraordinary things that awe you, 
in the in the day-to-day work environment just because these people have the qualities that I talk about humility um, you know appropriate risk-taking patience um, you know goal setting um, because these people have those abilities they elevate everyone else's level of play because I believe that when you're in the presence of people that I think Kim Cameron's work calls positive energizers, in my case, I call it ordinary grit, what we find is it's contagious and people are awed and inspired to be better people. And I think every workplace has to have those people embedded in them. And I'm seeing that it's very, very positive in a lot of different situations. Yeah, so in terms of those people sharing examples of that kind of ordinary grit, do you think that needs to be work-related or, or personal as well, but, but channels and places for people to be able to share those stories at work? Well, I spoke at a major financial um, investment organization about a year ago, and they had what they called a, a day of grit. And everyone who came to the microphone to share anything had to tell their own personal story of overcoming. And it wasn't always workplace related, because what we're talking about are character traits. And those character traits aren't necessarily um, professional achievements or bumper sticker virtues or resume virtues. I mean, it's just about who you are and how you see the world. Um, so I don't think it has to be professional accomplishments. It could be. But, but what we're talking about is the quality of a person who has the ability to be a finisher, who has the humility um, to ask for help, who has you know, the social humility in particular to not have to be the star of every conversation. In office places, we often find the disruptive jerk, you know, the person who might have selfie grit. They do hard mm-hmm. things. But they want to be sure everybody knows how hard they worked and how late they stayed. And, and all of that. And you also have this focret that's so pervasive in our culture now. Um, and you see it in academia. You see people faking their PhD um, research so they can just skip all the hard work that goes into um, doing, doing what's hard. You also see focret in companies like Enron and people who want to appear to have had these amazing financial results, but they've skipped all the hard work that goes into actually being someone who succeeded. The Ford Pinto is another great example of um, faux grit. So you want to be sure that you have the kinds of goals that are hard and out of your comfort zone, but you have to also know the difference between learning goals and performance goals, which is why I teach goal setting and grit at Wharton, um, because you can't really do one without the other. Um, So you've got to have the, you have to have some understanding of the science of goal setting, and there is a science to it, but you also have to understand what are the shortcuts that people often take to pretend they did hard things? How do you spot them? And then how do you create an environment where you want to cultivate the best parts of what I call authentic grit? Because to me, grit is not good unless it awes and inspires other people as well. So my definition is different from Angela's. She has passion and persistence in pursuit of long-term goals. Mine is about, again, the passionate pursuit of hard goals, but it's about awing inspiring other people to also take positive risks, go out of their comfort zone, um, and pursue their best possible lives. So if it's just grit in terms of being a finisher and other people are not uplifted or inspired by the example you're setting or the way in which you're doing what you're doing, what's the point? To me, that's not good grit. So I'm really trying to talk about good grit in, for, you know, for the right reasons in the right context. Otherwise, what you end up with is bad grit um, really repels people, and it doesn't uplift the state of play anywhere. 
Yeah, we actually were very philosophically aligned with that. We we talk about this in um, in the sense of community, where a workplace is really a a group of people working together, and we talk about bringing you know your whole self to work but not in the case where it stops other people <laughs> from being themselves, you know? So it's, it's be, being able to bring your whole self to work in a way that actually um, communes with other people in, of course, a, um, an environment that, that has a specific direction. Um, right. Right. It makes sense because there is no point in just elevating yourself at the expense of others. Um, or just trying to enrich yourself and not necessarily help other people because that's a lonely pursuit that never bears happy fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I understand it, the way I've conceptualized grit as authentic grit fits into what what we call systems theory in psychology. And what that means is that when change occurs, it has to be good for the collective, not just good for one person. So it sounds like we're all playing on the same field. And and one of the things that I do get concerned about, because I've been at this for a while, and I think there's some latecomers to the positive psychology party who are all doing this consulting in the flourishing workplace. And I have to say, I think that's positive psychology 1.0. And I don't want us all to miss, miss the message here that you don't just have to flourish. It isn't just about being pleasant and having a pleasant life mm-hmm. and, you know, doing the gratitude exercise and thanking coworkers. It is also about doing hard things. And when we lose or get away from the fact that flourishing people go out of their comfort zone, they do hard things. Um, we miss the whole, you know, discussion about how do you maximize success? Um, how do you actually build authentic self-esteem? So I do get concerned that in all of this, you know, plethora of consultants and organizations who all talk about the flourishing workplace, I swear another one is born every five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> don't, you know, don't lose sight of the fact that people still have to have goals that are evaluated and assessed properly. And you have to have goal setting theory. You have to understand that. That was my fifth book, Creating Your Best Life, which was the first goal setting book ever written that had research in it or footnotes. I mean, go figure. What were people buying until then? The law of attraction? I can't tell you how many companies I go into that have no sense of goal setting. But in order to really flourish as people, as organizations, you have to have these two things embedded, goal setting and grit and all of the right you know, character strengths that actually make those things possible uh, in the best possible way. So the flourishing workplace is one thing. But my goodness, let's not get away from this other part that maybe not is not as fun at times, but you got to have it. The rewards are bigger, right? Well, I think the rewards are big in, on bo- in both camps. I mean, you want to you have flourishing. You want to have moments of well-being. You've got, you want to have positivity. You want to have, you know, um, what, um, who just came out with the book, Jane Dutton and Monica Warline on compassionate workplaces. You do want to have all of those things. Those also bring out the best in people. My concern is that that was such a sexy place to go um, in the last 10, 15 years that we've gotten away from some of the basic blocking and tackling that is necessary also in a flourishing workplace. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned um, learning goals and performance goals. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Can you yeah. talk a little bit more about what those are and what the difference is? 
Sure. Um, so what I'm talking about here is goal-setting theory, and that's Edwin Locke and Gary Latham, um, who have a very well-known, very well-validated um, theory around motivation and productivity. And what they basically did was ask themselves, if goal-setting is all equal, why do we get different kinds of results in different settings? What motivates people um, to do their best? And what they found is very simple, but I think most people don't know it, is there's learning goals and there's performance goals. And too often what we see are people who have performance goals, which means you've done it before, you know how to do it, there's a metric um, that you can use to measure progress and be accountable for. You can set due dates based on the fact that it's been done before. So you can basically say, I'll cut down 100 trees in you know, this month, I'll swim 100 hours. Um, I will knock on X number of doors. I will bring this much revenue because I know how to make those sales calls and I know what the state of, um, you know, what the state of sales is in this particular area that I'm proficient in. Those are all performance goals. Learning goals are different. Learning goals are when you have to have a certain amount of creativity in getting to a finish line when maybe you haven't done it before. So you don't really know how to go about doing it in the best possible way. So in cases like that, what you're looking for is collaborative brainstorming. You're looking for people to still have challenging and specific goals, but they're around how you're learning things, what it is you're seeking to add in terms of skills or knowledge. Um, can you find a mentor to help you flatten your learning curve? So what I find far too often, I see this all the time, is people are being assessed in the workplace uh, with performance goal outcomes in situations that they've never done before. So it's a learning goal for you, um, but you're being assessed by performance goal metrics as if you have done it before. And what, what you find, and Harvard Business Review did a brilliant article on this a few years ago, which they called Goals Gone Wild, is you find people cutting corners and cheating. And the Ford Pinto, again, is one of these great examples where Lee Iacocco was like, you know, the European small cars, they're selling better. I want Ford to have one of those. I want to build a small car, 2,000 pounds. We're going to build it in six months. We're going to sell it for $2,000. I mean, it was all just numbers being plucked from the air. They'd never done a car like that. So what happened? People died. People died because it was a learning goal that Ford turned into a performance goal. Got to get it done by this date. But my God, we've never done a car with these specifications. We've never built one like this. Where does, where does the fuel line go? Well, because they didn't do that and they signed off on safety checks that should have been halted because bad things were happening, you know, people die. And you see this all the time. You see it with Wells Fargo. You see it with the Takata airbags constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so it's really, really important that anybody who's in a position of goal setting know and understand the basics of performance goals and learning goals, because it is a science. And I swear I did not know that till I got to Penn and was assigned goal setting theory. And I said, wait a minute, all these coaches and consultants in the workplace who are setting goals and teaching companies how to set goals? You mean they've never heard of goal setting theory? I mean, how could that be? So Creating Your Best Life was the very first evidence-based book that connected the science of goal setting with the science of flourishing. And that's an important connection because the research also shows that all success comes after being happy or flourishing first. So you can't talk about goal setting without talking about flourishing first. But you also can't go to goal setting unless you understand the science of goal setting. So I've been on a mission for at least 10 years to try to give back to my field of coaching um, the understanding that it is a science because coaches get criticized and sometimes very rightly 
for not having high professional standards for the field. And so at the very least, so many coaches set goals. You better know goal setting there. You better know it cold. And you better be able to, to do it with all of your clients. And if you're not, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so that's my take on goal setting theory and, and why it's so important and why I went deeper with grit. You have to then talk about grit. You can't do goal setting without then saying, okay, the hardest goals, the ones that bring the greatest results, you know, now we got to talk about how do we get to the finish line of those goals? How do we summon up the, the mental resources, what I call changing the channel, um, that allows you to keep going when you want to quit, you know, physically, emotionally. So you have to figure out how to become one of those elite finishers, but do it in a culture that hasn't demanded those standards. So it's kind of this revolution. I think we have to have a grit revolution, like Susan Cain had the quiet revolution, you know, right. the introvert re revolution. Mm -hmm. We need the exact same thing for grit. So let's just say I'm calling for it because I saw the standards being changed right under my kids' feet. I was stunned by how soft and easy it became. I mean, they even got rid of parallel parking in the Department of Motor Vehicle driving test in Maryland. I mean, that was the only thing that kept my kids off the roads, but it's too hard. You know, now we have shoes that tie themselves and we have playgrounds where nobody can even take a risk. Kids don't grow up taking risks. You know, there's nothing exciting about the neighborhood playground, so nobody's going. Everybody's trying to be safe and they're inside. They're in microaggression, you know, alerts all the time, you know, safe spaces and, you know, dumbed down curricula and everybody gets an A. I mean, I have to tell you, it, I've been stunned as a mother, stunned at what I've seen unfolding in front of me. And you can do your very best as a mother and a father in the face of it. But, you know, what kid isn't going to take an easy out if it's offered to them? Of I mean, my children even got retakes. Like, what's this all about? You could take a test in high school and you don't have to bring your A game to the test because there's automatic retakes offered because you just have to prove that you mastered the material, but you don't have to do your best the first time. I mean, what's that about? Really? I mean, we're, our lunch is getting eaten by other countries for a reason. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you on that. Um, so I actually, I have a question which is slightly different take, but related to something you said a little while ago around... Um, obviously, what we've been talking about in terms of workplace culture is is um, cultures that that have the right kinds of um, goal setting um, and proactively, you know, do these things. But the other side of that coin is um, an organization that maybe has a bad culture. And I'm I had a question which I'd love to hear your thoughts on on whether an individual can build grit out of their the way that they deal with a bad culture. What do you think about that? Well, that's a great question. I've never been asked that. So the question is, can you build grit in a culture that doesn't actually enforce it or inspire other people to be like that? Yeah. Um, or, or also, I mean, you talked, you mentioned some examples, you know, like Wells Fargo. Um, yeah. There are obviously organizations that, that have very toxic cultures Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm wondering whether an individual can, who, who has a job and is in a workplace um, can actually build their own grit kind of in spite of or out of that toxic culture as opposed to it being nurtured by a good culture. 
Well, that's a, that's probably debatable um, because if you think about Wells Fargo and you think that the whistleblowers were all punished, so they're mm-hmm. trying to do the right thing and they're trying to basically get rid of the you know the fogret that's going on, everybody cutting corners and cheating, um, and they get punished. And you look around and I think people are looking at it saying, "Wow, what, what happens here if you do the right thing?" Um, the, the, the situation that comes to mind for me is if you're in a toxic culture, but you feel purposeful and you feel like what you're doing is meaningful and you persist in doing that meaningful job in the absence of an environment that gives you a trophy for doing it, I think that is the right kind of grit. And in, for some reason in my mind, I'm thinking about hospitals, which have notoriously sick systems. You know, people um, complain all the time about the hospital culture. But Amy Rusnewski's work on hospital orderlies is fascinating, and that's where we came up with the, you know, work as a calling, because a lot of hospital orderlies feel like they have the most important job in the hospital because they take care of patients' rooms. They make the room smell nice and clean, and they adjust the blinds, and they basically make the, the patient feel more comfortable. And so in cases like that, you can persist in doing the best you can at a job that you find is a calling and feels meaningful um, in a sick system. But I think there are limits to how long you can actually be in uh, an environment that is contagiously negative. Right. Well, maybe that's actually part of our grit revolution then is to, to kind of make it more visible and more help mm-hmm. kind of protect people who want to, you know, pull back the curtain on some of this stuff. Well, what's interesting, it's a really good point you're making. So we can declare the grit revolution. It starts today. Um, but I, I do think that one of, one of the things that is so interesting to me is these people who have this authentic grit, you know, this, you know, they're doing hard things, but they're not doing it in a showy way. And they're doing it because it's important to them. And they feel like they're making a difference with their goals. Um, they're setting new standards for a sport or they're breaking new ground with um, what they're pursuing, like the people who um, approved um, Einstein's theory of relativity, these five people who worked, you know, in the anonymity for the most for 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what I find is they're not talking about themselves the way the selfie culture talks about themselves. So you have to be curious and find out what their stories are. What have they done? How are they doing it? Which means you have to understand who your coworkers are and hold them up as examples when it's appropriate. So you have to take a look at what does this culture celebrate? What is it that we uh, make visible and reward? So you have to, these people aren't going to volunteer necessarily. Um, And I'll give you an example of something I, I, I write about that I think gives us really a really powerful learning opportunity. And in my book, I talk about an Iraq War veteran named Kevin Downs who returned to his high school in Tennessee, Harpeth High School, where he'd been a three-sport athlete after his body was mangled and he was the only survivor of a Humvee that was uh, exploded with an IED. So five people died and he lived, but at quite a physical cost. He went back to this high school and he said, you know, I, I want to have a purpose again. I want to wake up and have a place to go. Something that, you know, I feel like I can do and make a difference. We so said, can I just cut the grass? And they said, well, of course you can cut the grass. And so he's silently doing his job on his little tractor going back and forth. And the most interesting thing happens to these high school football players. 
And that is they're looking at him, what he's doing, the way he's doing it, without calling attention to himself, giving a speech about grit or what he's endured. But the coach noticed that the kid stopped whining as a result of having this example embedded in their culture. And so we have to be able to see and, and, and know what some of the stories are of the people around us. These are the positive energizers. Again, that Kim Cameron talks about, that's the Ross School of Business. So it's really up to us to find and elevate them. I spoke at a school in Texas that I think did something brilliant around this because in a quick fix society, a lot of young adults and, and youth, you know, have real trouble sitting with uncomfortable feelings or even failure. You know, they think in this airbrushed world where everyone's posting you know, beautiful, you know, pictures of themselves on Instagram and Facebook. It's like nobody is sharing what's not going well. And it makes you look like everyone's at a perpetual party with unicorns. Um, <laughs> and so this school came up with this great idea, which was they called it the Stall Street Journal. And so when you go into the bathroom, every stall has a laminated story in the stall of someone you'll encounter at the school. It could be anybody, a teacher, it could be a somebody who works at the front desk. It could be those school psychologists, but it's someone you'll see during the day and it's their story of overcoming, something they've overcome, how they did it. Um, because a lot of these students wouldn't know from just looking at them that they too have struggled, but they survived, you know? And, and I think there's this lack of resilience that we've seen baked into the culture as things have been whisked away at the cost of everybody needs to be happy all the time, the self-esteem movement. Consequently, suicides have been spiking. And there's been a real um, call to action around the fact that it's a generation that isn't able to be, isn't able to rebound as effectively as previous generations. So they need to hear and see and understand that other people too have failed or felt despondent or wished they could end their lives but didn't, you know, and found out that the sun came up the next day. So that was a really brilliant way to do it. And this financial company I spoke at had their day of grit. So I, I think there are many ways to do this. And I think we have to do this. We have to do it. If some of Angela Duckworth's research and other research um, finds that in order to feel like you belong somewhere, this sense of belonging, you have to be connected to other people who have felt like newcomers too, but who found a way to overcome whatever those initial feelings of, I don't belong here, are all about. We see this with first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. So you do need to be around people who are vulnerable enough and humble enough to share that they too have struggled at times. Yeah. We can definitely do that through through culture, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are actually just about out of time, uh, maybe even a little over time. Um, but I just, I love all of this stuff. And I definitely um, officially declare the grit revolution. <laughs> it started today. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Let's do it. The grit Let's revolution has begun. Because yeah. it is... To me, this is a national priority. It is critical because the world is complicated, dangerous, scary, and this is the first generation of young adults who are not expected to you know, rise to their parents' living standards. You gotta be tough, you gotta be resilient, you gotta be able to roll with the punches, so we gotta get with it. Totally agree. So thank you, Caroline, so much for joining us today on the Culture Chat. 
and we will close it here um, and look forward to the next episode coming up soon. Thank you. And that was the Culture Chat today. We'll have some highlights up on the blog soon. Find out more about WorkXO and how to map your workplace genome at workxo.com.